0: So, our passage this morning is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. We're just going to keep pushing through the book, passage by passage. And the first thing we're going to do is the most important thing in Bible study, understanding the context of where this passage comes in. So there's no such thing as a passage that just drops from the sky. Every passage is part of the author's bigger flow of thought. So I showed us this. The second most important thing is have a clicker. Not working. Hmm. Talk amongst yourselves. There it is. Okay. I showed us this graphic last week. This is the the overview of Peter's epistle. Peter is a good Baptist. His epistle has three clear points that lead into one another. Peter's first point in his epistle is if you are a Jesus follower, if you are following the crucified God, man, you have a new identity. You are a new person and so Peter, in the first part of his letter, gives us all of these new analogies to say this is who you are. You are the true Israel and you are a nation of priests and you are kings and you are sacrifices. And then section two, that's where we are today. This is the middle section of Peter's epistle. Peter says, okay, now that you're new people, because you have a new identity, you also are going to live life in the world in a different way. And he talks about four different social situations that should uh, be completely changed by following the crucified God-man. He is not just saying, here are new rules for your situation. He's doing something much more radical in this section of the epistle. He's saying by following Jesus, you're going to think about these situations in a new moral way. Following a God who died for his enemies must make the way you think about government and citizens change. And you have to think about masters and slaves differently. And then husbands and wives, that's what we talked about last week. So then this week is the first section about community in general. So we're just going to do the first four verses of what Peter says about how following Jesus should change your understanding of community in general. Then the third section of Peter's epistle is when he says, and as new people, we have a new hope. We're looking forward to what God has for us in the resurrection in the future. So that's Peter's outline and it's really important to understand where we are. Now, before we read the passage, I want to do a second thing. The second thing is I want to tell a story, a short story, about how these verses have been used in the history of the church. Because these verses, specifically verses 8 and 9, kind of have taken on a life of their own in Protestant history over the last 500 years. And when I first heard this story, when I first heard how these verses have been used, it really, it made these verses, maybe I could say, some of the toughest verses in the New Testament, the realest verses in the New Testament, the hardest to follow. um, Which is saying something because another verse in the New Testament is, be perfect. So... (laughs) Another verse in the New Testament is love your wife like Christ loved the church. And I would put put 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 on that same list, on that same shelf of high ethical demands that the church should follow. And that's because I I know this story of how they've been used. So I want to color the verses in for you. So here's here's the story. Um, Right after the Protestant Reformation, so as the Protestant churches were separating from Rome and kind of forming their own denominations, the Protestant churches could not agree about some specifics of communion. Luther and Zwingli got in a fight and then Luther and Calvin got in a fight and Calvin and Zwingli got in a fight and they couldn't agree how Jesus relates to the element. Is he in the bread and the cup or is he around it? But all of the Protestants could agree on two aspects about communion. These were two things all of the Protestants held in common. The first thing was that this table is the... Kingdom covenant table where all of the people in Jesus are invited to eat uh, with him and with one another. This is not just a ritual we're doing, this is the kingdom meal. If you are in Jesus, you are a part of the new humanity. God has fixed everything in Jesus. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has restarted humanity. He's redeeming the world from the inside out. And if you are following Jesus, you are part of that reclamation project. You're part of God's plan to redeem the world from the inside out. And our meal we take together is communion. It's not a ritual. It's a meal we take together and it's a meal we take with the king. Don't ask how the king is involved because then we're all going to start fighting. But the king is involved and we're all eating together. That's what communion is. The second thing all the Protestants agreed on, they said, "This this is what we all agree about communion, is that if you take communion with an unchecked heart, with a heart that isn't actually saying, I want to live like this new kingdom people. I want to take on Jesus' commands for us. If you take communion without a checked heart like that, God might kill you. They took this very seriously. So this is the verse that got a lot of air time. This verse, First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight to 30. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died." So Paul is writing here to the Corinthians who are taking communion in an, with unchecked hearts. And he says, this is why God killed some of you. So this verse got a lot of airtime in the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, saying when we come to the table, we are not just remembering what God has done for us. We also, by coming to the table, are saying we are reaffirming our vows, we're renewing our vows as kingdom people. We want to be part of the Jesus kingdom that is fixing the world from the inside out. And if that is not your heart, don't come to the table because God might kill you. <laughs> and and they, it definitely got a lot, uh, a lot more airtime on on that threat than we have today. So that's where our passage comes into play. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9 were then used as these are two verses which explain what the kingdom ethic is. The Jesus people follow First Peter 3, 8, and 9. So those two verses, that's how it connects to our passage, have always been held up by Protestants as this is the type of ethic we have within the church and the type of ethic we have towards the world out there. And if this is not our heart, don't come to communion. Now, it, it definitely, like I said, could it can be overdone and in some protestant traditional denominations the uh, scare people with communion tactic has happened one this kind of a funny story there's a moody professor who is part of a very traditional protestant denomination and he was leading a trip for moody students in israel and at the end of the trip they you're in jerusalem at the tomb where jesus was probably buried and you take communion at the tomb but because he's part of a more traditional denomination that says this verse a lot. He read this verse and then he read 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9 and he said, if this isn't your heart, God will kill you and none of the Moody students took communion. Every one of them passed it to the next person and no one took it. Um, it's, it's kind of funny. I do, what I'm saying is I do agree it can be overdone. And that's, I really don't want to swing that way. You can say we're not doing a ritual and overswing. But the truth is, the truth that I want to recover and talk about this morning is that coming to the table is not just about you remembering what Jesus did for you so you get to go to heaven. Individual grace is a beautiful truth that should cause us to cry and should cause us to write songs and should cause us to worship. But communion is much more than that. It is also us as a kingdom people coming to the table saying we are going to be kingdom people. What it means to be a Jesus follower has a certain ethic within ourselves and a certain ethic towards the world. And if you're not on board with Jesus' mission to redeem the world from the inside out, don't come to his table. That's, that's the main point and that's how these passages have been used. So that's the setup to how these verses kind of have their own life in church history. So I'm going to read the verses now. We'll, we'll jump in. 1 Peter 3, 8 through 12. Finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. for now i have i have this in middle font because this is peter quoting a psalm. he's quoting psalm 34 here. whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. let him turn away from evil and do good, let him seek peace and pursue it for the eyes of the lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the lord is against those who do evil. So that's the section. Here's how I have it broken down. A very important thing to do, the most important thing to do in Bible study, tied with context, is be able to break down a passage and say these are the main points of each verse. So verse 8 is how we should act internally. This is Peter saying we are the Jesus people. Community in general is redefined around the fact that God died for his enemies. And verse 8 is how we treat each other internally. Verse 9 is how we treat the world, the other kingdoms, and verses 10 through 12 is Peter quoting a psalm to say God has always had this ethical standard for his people. Okay? So that's, that's the breakdown of this passage. What I'm going to do is I'm going to say some, tec- uh, some comments about the text of verse 8 and then apply verse 8, some comments about verse 9, and then apply verse 9. Okay? Comments, application for verse 8 and 9, and then we'll take communion. Okay. So the first thing to notice about verse 8, verse 8 gives us five adjectives to describe how the church ought to treat one another within the body. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, one thing English uh, readers will miss is when we see a list, it might sound like just a collection, a laundry list of good ideas, but uh, Hebrew writers often, when they write a list, they have this, it's called a chiasm, where the first and the last element are the same idea, The second and the fourth element are the same idea. And then the third element is being elevated is very important. Do you see that? So the first and the fifth element, we should have a unity of mind and a humble mind. That has to do with how our minds should act. Then we should have a sympathetic heart and a tender heart. That's how our hearts should be towards one another. And then in the center of the chiasm is brotherly love. It's Philadelphia. We should be Philadelphians and Eagles fans. That's, that's, no, we shouldn't. Okay, apparently they didn't like that. Okay, that's the chiasm. Now, there's another another cool thing about these five adjectives specifically. These five adjectives appear in lots of different texts around the New Testament. So, So Peter isn't just making up nice words to say this is how you should treat one another. These five adjectives also appear in Romans 12 when Paul is talking about this is how you should treat one another. He's using the same words. Now, they're they're not in the same order. There's words in between them. Sometimes they're participles, not adjectives. But he's using the same vocabulary. Then in James, in James 4, when James talks about how we should treat one another, he uses the same vocabulary. And then in 1 John, 1 John 1, when John talks about how we should treat one another, he uses the same vocabulary. So, the most important thing in Bible study, tied for the three most important things in Bible study, is seeing when Bible authors are quoting each other. They're all in dialogue with one another. And all four of these passages use the same vocabulary to describe how Christians ought to treat one another within the body of Christ. And it gets cooler. I know it can't get much cooler than this, you're thinking. But it does because all four of these passages are actually referencing Jesus. In John 13 through 17, remember what's happening there. That's the upper room discourse. So Jesus, on his last night on earth, spoke with the apostles for four chapters in a row. He had them uh, take a Passover meal, which he turns into communion. And then he says, this is how you're supposed to treat one another. This is how you should interact with the Father. This is how to interact with the world. And he talks to his apostles for four chapters, and then he dies for them. But on that last night on Jesus' on Jesus's life, when he institutes communion, he says, have amongst yourselves unity of mind, humble mind, sympathetic heart, a tender heart, and Philadelphia. He uses that vocabulary in front of the apostles, then he gives them communion, then he dies. So that explains why when all of the apostles talk about how we should treat one another, they use the same vocabulary. They're getting it from what Jesus told them on the night before he died. Isn't that cool? So that's, that's, my te- that's just my comments about the text itself. Now, now we'll move to applying it. I, I think in applying this, we, we're okay in using a word that Christians will use about how we should treat one another. There's a common Christian word which is unity. Christians should be unified. I think that's a good word to summarize the application of this verse. Now, there are two kinds of unity. There are two ways to get unity one of them the world can produce without the Holy Spirit. This type of unity comes about by just kicking out everyone with whom you have a small disagreement. If you are angrily, logically coherent and you kick out everyone that there's a little bit of a disagreement on, you can get unified that way. Political parties are very unified. If you disagree with our platform at all, Go vote for the other guy and that means our political party is very unified but that's a type of unity that doesn't need the Holy Spirit. It's possible for other religions to have very strong unity but it's a type of unity that comes about by saying if we live differently, if we think differently, if we disagree at all, you're, you're gone. That, that way, other religions can have this type of unity. The type of unity that the apostles and Jesus are talking about is a type of unity that needs the holy spirit because it's a type of unity that comes even when we disagree we're going to disagree about secondary christian doctrines not the trinity not the atonement not the resurrection but secondary christian doctrines we will disagree we will vote differently we will live the christian life differently and unity means having a love for one another that transcends those differences if your only understanding of unity is we have to kick out everyone with whom we disagree, that type of unity doesn't need the Holy Spirit. This type of unity transcends difference. Now, there have been times in church history when the church fights each other and disbands uh, and excommunicates one another over issues that we would now say are silly. So I want to give some of those examples. Um, these are the examples. The first one, quattro Decimanism. Oh, remember that one? Remember when the church was at at each other's throats over decimanism? Does anyone want to take a guess? That was in the first two centuries, so for the first 200 years of the church, the church was at each other's throat. Guess guess what the fight was over? When when is Easter? Should you celebrate Easter on Passover or should you celebrate Easter according to a solar calendar? Churches split over that. They excommunicated one over that one another over that. They said, we can't have communion together because of when is Easter? The second one, the filioque clause. Oh, 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 the filioque clause. Remember that one? That's the question. This is in the 10th century. The 10th century is when Christians fought over that. That is, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father alone or the Father and the Son? It's kind of an important question. It deals with the Trinity. Christians really excommunicated each other over that. Split families, split churches said, I can't take communion with you if you think differently on this issue. And then the Marburg Colloquy, Ugh, oh, the Marburg Colloquy. Remember that? That was when Luther and Zwingli, they got together, Luther and Zwingli said, we want to have uh, 15 articles of confession that all of the Protestants agree on. And they agreed on 14 of them and everything in the 15th confession except for one preposition. Is Jesus in and under communion? Or is Jesus with us in communion? They couldn't agree over that, excommunicated one another, and Luther stabbed a knife in the table. This is justifying disunity over issues which love should transcend. What what I would say is there are American Christians which are just like this. They are quick to say, if we can't agree on when to celebrate Easter, you're not a real Christian. We shouldn't take communion together. If we can't agree on all the aspects of how to live out the Christian life, If we can't agree on how to vote together, if we can't agree on how old the earth is, if we can't agree on spiritual gifts, if we can't agree on predestination, then one of us isn't a Christian. American Christians are just as quick to excommunicate each other as the quattro were. I don't know how to pluralize it. And another thing is, from, from this perspective, we can look back and say all of those issues were ridiculous. They should have seen that when we come to the table. We are coming as a community together to say we love one another with a type of love that transcends difference. And when we look back and see Christians fighting about when Easter was, that was ridiculous. What will Christians in 200 years say if they look back at American Christians and say they couldn't take communion together over that difference? I'm not talking about the Trinity. I'm not talking about core Christian truth. But Christians who disagree over central issues might as well disagree over when Easter is. When we come to the table, we are not just saying, Jesus forgives me so I get to take my ticket to go to heaven. When we come to the table, we as a group are saying we are part of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is full of self-sacrificial love. We need to love each other with a type of love that transcends difference. And if you can't transcend difference, then you shouldn't come to the table because God might kill you. Okay. Okay. It's a little intense, but I didn't want to say it like that, but it it might kill you. It's in the Bible. Okay, verse 9. Now we're going to move on to verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. So, the most, oh, so at first, the textual comment about this verse is Jesus, uh, Peter is also stealing this from Jesus. Jesus says, if you're slapped, turn the other te- cheek. Jesus says, if someone asks for your cloak, you give your tunic also. So Peter, when he is getting his understanding of how our kingdom is supposed to address the kingdoms out there, takes Jesus' words and says, this is our kingdom ethic towards the world out there. Now, for application, the most severe application of this truth is that we need to love those who would violently persecute us for our faith. So, last year in Sudan, um, six Christians were crucified. Six men were pulled out of their homes in the middle of the night with their wives and kids screaming. and, And six men were tied to wood and then nails were put in their wrists. And six men died of crucifixion. This is saying while they were being nailed to wood, they were called to love their persecutors. Not put up with them. Bless your persecutors. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing." That is the most radical application of this kingdom ethic. If we come to communion, we are saying that is the ethical stance we are taking as we approach the world. Now, I think there are, again, two ways, there's two ways that American Christians might be quick. We can kind of get a lawyered, jerry-rigged way around this verse to make it not, it's not so intense. Here's our two ways around this verse. The first one is to say, I don't have to bless my enemy. I can take revenge if they are coming after me for a reason other than specifically religious issues. Right? If it's specific religious persecution, then I can't fight back. But if they were just mean to me, I can, I can get my right. I can, be, I can get my vengeance in that conversation. If someone is just assaulting me, I'm allowed to get my right. If someone is coming after me in the corporate realm, I'm allowed to take what's mine and take vengeance, that, that is a way that American Christians can kind of jerry-rig their way around this command. Unless I'm being persecuted for specifically religious reasons, that's the only time I have to turn the other cheek. Otherwise, I'm allowed to fight back. So a, a couple stories. One is, there was a man who was kind of associated with Moody. He was older, but he was taking some courses at Moody and he had been a Marine and he was very in shape. And when he was walking downtown Chicago, a homeless man pulled a knife on him. And the homeless man was very inebriated and, and wanted his wallet. The man, the, this Christian man, he didn't just disarm the man or run away. He pummeled the homeless man and defended it by saying, This is my right. He came after me. I have the right to defend myself. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying full pacifism. This is, we're not full pacifists at church. You don't have to just get stabbed. You're allowed to defend yourself. But taking vengeance is wrong. Vengeance is the Lord's. Responding by saying, he comes after me, it's my right to get my pound of flesh back, is in direct violation of the table ethic. Our kingdom says, if you're part of our group, we don't take vengeance. We can defend ourselves, but we don't take vengeance. Uh, Another example, uh, there was an older Christian couple we knew where he, he took a lot of medication and one of the medications was supposed to lower his heart rate, but the pharmacy messed it up and gave him medication which raised his heart rate very serious mistake when they found out um, this older christian couple sued the pharmacy for all they were worth destroyed the pharmacy took millions of dollars the justification is they made a mistake it's our right we get to claim what was ours no again we're not i'm not taking the full pacifist route. you are allowed to use the courts you should defend yourself legally if that takes but what they did was take vengeance You don't have the right to hit back even when you were hit or wronged or mistreated in a non-religious situation. If you come to communion, you are saying, I am taking on Jesus' ethic, which is to love the world and never take vengeance, even in non-religious situations. There's a second way I think Christians kind of we can we can get around this command. We can make this not as intense. And the second way, it sounds so biblical. It's using biblical logic against the Bible. It's to say, well, the most loving thing I can do for them is just preach them the truth. So I don't have to love them or serve them. If I just tell them they're a sinner and God hates sin, I'm doing the most loving thing I can. Now, that's true. The Bible says that, that preaching truth to someone, even if it's inconvenient, is true. That is loving. But Christians can use that truth to just shout at other people's sins and say, that's the most loving thing I can do. So here's, here's more stories, more examples. Um, there was a girl we knew who became a Christian and after becoming a Christian, was very quick to let everyone else know how wrong they were for not being Christians. And she was invited to Thanksgiving, family Thanksgiving, and you can see where this is going, uh, let everyone know how wrong they were and was not invited back for family Christmas. Got herself uninvited from family Christmas. But her response was, I was just loving them. I was just I was just lovingly letting them know how evil they all are. Now, again, telling someone the truth is loving, but there's a way to use that logic to get around this verse. Uh, That can be contrasted with a a professor of mine at Moody. There was a professor of mine at Moody who was invited to Thanksgiving, a different Thanksgiving, um, with a lot of Orthodox Jews. There was a lot of Orthodox Jews in his neighborhood, so they had a communal Thanksgiving, a Friendsgiving, and the Orthodox Jews began, like, insulting him for his stupidity to follow Jesus. And it, it was more than just, like, joking. It was it became insulting. He didn't fight back. He didn't yell back and quote Isaiah 53 and, and show all the reasons why they're wrong. He just took it. And then that Saturday, it was um, one of the winters where there was a lot of early snow. That Saturday, he shoveled all of their driveways because they're not going to work on the Sabbath. Eventually, he had a relationship with them and was able to sit down over coffee and talk about Jesus. There is a way to get around this verse by saying, I don't have to love my enemies and actually work to serve them. I don't have to actually sit down and talk with them. If I just shout truth at them and then when they don't want to hear it, it's their fault. That can be used to get out of this verse. When we come to the table, when we come to communion, we are not just saying, I would like my forgiveness, please. We are also saying, I am committed to loving other Christians in a way that transcends difference. Even if they're different than me, I love them. And when we come to the table, we are saying I'm adopting this posture to the world. I want to love and forgive and serve the world even when they're nailing me to a cross. And to not have that kingdom ethic, but take forgiveness is to disrespect God. Um, So here's here's a story that I think kind of illustrates my point. When I was at Moody, Uh, there was a friend of mine, she was in a ministry where they would help high school kids who had made some wrong decisions kind of get back on track. So she invited a bunch of people to come to an info night about her ministry. And she had us all, uh, she she had a bunch of Chick-fil-A. She had Chick-fil-A catered for all of us. And she said, you don't have to stay for the infomercial. You don't have to get the pamphlets and hear me talk. You can just take the Chick-fil-A and leave if you have to. That was a mistake because a bunch of college kids came, just took the Chick-fil-A and did not stay to hear the the presentation about how to join a ministry. I was totally going to go just take the Chick-fil-A and leave but I saw so many people were doing that, only four of us stayed. She had 10 pounds of Chick-fil-A. People came, take it and left and four of us stayed to hear the presentation. When we come to communion, and say, I would like my forgiveness, please, but I am not going to love other Christians in a way that transcends difference, and I am not going to love the world even when they're crucifying me, you are saying to Jesus, I would like my Chick-fil-A, please, but I'm not listening to the presentation. Here's a, here's a, a final example. I've, I learned this in marriage. This is a pro tip for marriage. In marriage, there are two, there you, there's appropriate ways to come home and wrong ways to come home. Here's, you're allowed to come home and say, I have a lot of work to do and I have to study and write a lesson and go to your study. Or you're allowed to come home and kiss your wife and ask how was your day and eat the food she made. You are not allowed to come home, take the food she made, and go to your study. If you want to eat the food, you have to kiss your wife and ask how was your day. Or you can go to your study. If you come to communion and say, I would like my forgiveness, please, but I am not dedicated to loving other Christians in a way that transcends difference and I am not going to love the world even when they're crucifying me. You're like a husband coming home and saying, I would like the food and now I have to go work. (laughs) It didn't, I don't know who I'm talking, it was a different guy, but. (laughs) Okay, before we come to communion, I want to tell a final story about what I, I think really illustrates this whole situation. This is a story about one of the first missionaries in the Philippines. He was one of the first missionaries in the Philippines and he was from a denomination where to become a member, you have to affirm a covenant, which means you have to read a long doctrinal statement and like stand up and affirm it and explain what it means, which is fine. I like that form of church. It's a good form of church. But maybe the downside is in some parts of the world, all of the uneducated people who can't read, they can't become church members. Only rich, educated people can become church members because you have to read a doctrinal statement and affirm it in front of people. So in this particular church, uh, a lot of rich, educated people became members, but no one else even had a chance. So the pastor saw that was an issue and he changed it and he said, Look, even if you can't read, you are welcome to come to our church and take communion. And then the pastor went out to uh, talked to some of the women who were involved in sex work and he talked to women who worked in brothels and were on the street at night and said, if you want to come to church, you can, you can come to church. And most of them didn't know what church was but they said, okay, there's a white guy inviting us to church. So a bunch of them came, came to church. The members of the church who had done their homework, read the doctrinal statement, stood up and affirmed it, were not happy that there were so many other people allowed to take communion. This was also the type of church where when you take communion, we pass the trays, but this was the type of church where you come to the front and the pastor hands everyone the element and says, this is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's body broken for you. And when he would do that to some of the members, they would take it and go sit down, but the women would cry and say, he didn't do that. He doesn't know who I am. This is not, Christ did not break his body for me. And he would have to like convince them, no, take communion. It is. He broke his body for you. And then they would go sit down. Well, it, it gets worse. Eventually, most of the members left. So it was a church of primarily sex workers. It was the pastor preaching to a church of primarily sex workers. And over time, praise God, they were allowed to get jobs and get some education and work out. And eventually, a number of the women went back and forgave the men who used to sell them out. And they said, we, you, don't, you don't know who Jesus is, but he's changed my life and I forgive you. That story, I think, is the perfect example Of communion is more than just saying, I would like my forgiveness. It is saying, I am coming to the table with a heart that means I am dedicated to loving these other people in a way that transcends difference. And it doesn't matter if they can't read, if they're in a completely different social class or anything they've done. And it means when you come to the table, you are saying, I am part of the Jesus community that will forgive the world no matter how badly they've mistreated me. But if we come to the table and just get our forgiveness, Without saying this is also what we're agreeing to, we're like a selfish husband just taking dinner and going to the study. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for your gospel. And thank you for the church. You do not save us as individuals. You save us as individuals who are then brought into your kingdom. We want to be people who come to your table not selfish just for forgiveness, but also with hearts ready to love other Christians, even Christians who are different than us. And we want to be the type of people who come to your table ready to love the world around us. We know that that type of heart change doesn't come by willpower, but comes by the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask for your Spirit to change us into these type of people but we know that you will answer our plea because you've bought the Spirit for us with the blood of your Son. So Spirit, come, turn us into Christians who appropriately approach your table. In Jesus' name we pray.